Well, friends, welcome to another True Tone Lounge. Today, we are honored to have Stuart Smith of the Eagles. So thank you for coming, Stuart. Thank you. Thanks for having yes. me. Of course, besides the last 20 years that Stuart has uh, spent you know, with the Eagles, he has a career as a record producer with you know, Rodney Crowell and Sean Colvin. And as a session man, he's worked with Vince Gill and Joni Mitchell and Melissa Etheridge and Roseanne Cash and uh, all, all sorts of artists. And uh, again, we're honored to, uh, you know, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. It's, uh, it, it's a, a real treasure. So thank you. Happy to be invited. Thank you, Zach. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, when, did, uh, when did music kind of uh, hit you and you actually wanted to learn to play an instrument? I would say very young. Uh, not that I could play. <clears throat> sort of banged on the piano, but... Uh... I was conscious enough of music that I was aware of pop music. Uh, the first record I ever owned, I must have been, I don't know, seven or eight years old. It was the Everly Brothers Till I Kissed You. And that was a Christmas present. Um, but on top of that, from age of uh, seven to 11, I sang in a boys choir, uh, which I loved. Our church was Episcopalian, uh, Anglican Episcopalian, which is uh, very British. It was the Church of England, essentially. Right. A couple of, of the priests uh, actually had posh English accents. But what it also meant was that it, you were drawing material from the entirety of European, you know, Holy Roman Empire uh, liturgy. Um, right. And uh, so it was pretty deep and broad. And I loved that. That was great. Um, but yeah, I, even as a very young kid, I, I responded to, uh, to music and everybody in the family was interested in music in one form or another. Uh, my parents were part of a, uh, an amateur Gilbert and Sullivan troupe, uh, that, uh, performed every, I think every fall they did, they chose a show and would put it on. And, uh, it was a, more of a social thing, I think for them, but uh, and they listened to opera, which I've never been able to make my peace with, but uh, <laughs> respected that. But what was really handy for me, I think, was my, my brothers. I had two older brothers. The oldest one loved anything to do with harmony. Beach Boys, Letterman, uh, a Kingston Trio, New, uh, new Christie Minstrels, you know, all that stuff. And of right. course obviously was very much in the folk era, but the Beach Boys too were huge in his world. And that was, you know, I, I shared that love too. And uh, 
my other brother was into down and dirty R&B soul music, Stax Volt. Uh, Motown was even a little too namby-pamby for him, uh, a little too sweet. James Brown. Uh, yeah, all that Stax Volt stuff in particular, Muscle Shoals. But uh, he listened to only one white artist that I remember, and he adored that artist, and it was Bob Dylan. So. All of those things were floating around the house. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, was a nice time. And like I said, I banged on the piano, but not, not very productively, but you know, enough to sort of figure out this and that. My mom once taught me the, uh, the first few bars of Moonlight Sonata. She played piano a little bit, so yeah. So when, when did the guitar come into the picture? Well, the first thing that came in the end of the picture was <clears throat> my mom's banjo ukulele, which I still have. It's one with the headstock that says the Gibson. So I, I guess that dates it to a pretty early time. Right. Um, played that because my oldest brother, um, the one that liked all the harmony, he would have friends over and they would sit and play folk music, learn learning folk music and stuff. And um, <clears throat> so I would try to learn these songs on the, the banjo uke. One of the guys that came over uh, had a thumb pick and used it to finger pick. And I, of course, said, well, then that's what you have to do. I mean, you have to have a thumb pick. And uh, so that's, that's why I adopted that. Uh, but the guitar, uh, my, my oldest brother also had uh, an inexpensive silver tone. And <clears throat> at some point towards the end of sixth grade I got pneumonia and I was stuck in the house my both my parents worked I had the house to myself and I would just go into my older brother's room and steal his silver tone and uh, open up like a, a folk singer's guide to to you know material to songs with the little chord diagrams and all that stuff uh, so that would put me at about 11 and 12 when uh, I guess the guitar showed up yeah, that's very interesting about the uh, the thumb pick. I was I was gonna say, you know, was it from uh, from the folkies or from the Chet people? <laughs> because those tend to be the ones that tend to be into the thumb pick. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, uh, those things also aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But yeah, um, it was it was folk music. Think the finger picking thing. Yeah, Travis picking, I guess, of a sort. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it just it, when it came time to play other things, when I started getting into pop music and rock and roll, I just never took the thumb pick off. And it was not really a conscious decision or anything. It wasn't, I didn't think I was being clever using one. I thought I was, yeah. I didn't, what you had to do. Yeah. So there wasn't any pressure from other players going like, you know, ditch that, you know, ditch that thumb pick, you know, use a flat <laughs> pick like, you know, like everyone else is using. <laughs> well, what you had the advantage of, I never dropped a pick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so when do you start really getting serious about the guitar? Well, you know, I, I had sort of fits, uh, these bursts of intense interest for a couple of months and I'd play guitar all the time and learn songs and then I'd get kind of sick of it and, and walk away from it for, uh, for months at a time. Um, but there was a certain amateur seriousness about that. Uh, I don't think I even had the opportunity to be um, a, a full-on guitarist until I was in my mid-20s. Uh, 
when I first started playing in bands um, in DC, there were so many great guitar players there. Right. I had just enough keyboard chops to, to get through, you know, arrangements and stuff. I was not a fancy player at all, but um, I came to DC as, as a piano player just, you know, you were more valued because there were so few of us <laughs> that could play the keyboards. I mainly use it as a, an arranging tool. But um, yeah, uh, I didn't have an opportunity to have my own gig as a guitar player in a pro really professional setting until uh, I was about 25 or something like that, I think. <clears throat> Let's, you, you just kind of hit on something, you know, of course, there was tons of you know kind of you you said that dc is known for you know the guitar players and the guitar players in that scene because you've got roy buchanan and danny gatton and john jennings and and all, all these guys so were you going and seeing those guys play were, were those guys influences on you yeah absolutely and uh, and one that you've never heard of probably which i'll tell you in a second when we first got together this band got together in dc i moved in uh 73 and <clears throat> we didn't have any gigs, but we were, we were sort of at the rehearsal stage, getting our stuff together. And the first night I ever went out to a bar, they were all saying, you got to see this guy, Danny Gatton. And uh, so I we went to uh, the keg in Washington, D.C., and it was Liz Meyer and friends with Danny and the Fat Boys. Okay. And Danny and the Fat Boys was Danny's trio. And they were backing up this woman, Liz Meyer, and another guy whose name escapes me. And at that, the Gatton was in uh, Telecaster mode with an Echoplex and utterly mind boggling. I, I was so glad that I was there as a piano player. I said, I'm not even going to try to do what these guys are doing. But, and, and Danny was great and he had tons of technique. Um, <clears throat> had a very large vocabulary, but I think Roy had more to say. More, there was more on Roy's mind. Roy was uh, kind of a tortured artist. I guess in a way Danny might have been as well. They both committed suicide and yeah. strange coincidence there. But um, yeah, uh, they de definitely were influences, but the band that I was playing keyboards for had a guitar player named Mike Dennis, okay. who was just a fabulous guitar player. And at that time, the talk about Roy was, okay, his rig is Telecaster, uh, Vibrolux, I believe, yeah, Vibrolux, everything on 10 except for the reverb, and everything else from here, from, you know, from the guitar. Well, Mike Dennis did a similar thing, only he used a Strat, and a pro reverb, everything on 10. And he was the most lovely player, very lyrical and melodic and tone. Uh, and at that time, most players were either Tele players or Les Paul players, at least in DC. Um, the Strat was not the thing like it became later, you know, not for, Hendrix of course had that thing, but if you imitated Hendrix, you just sounded like Hendrix. I mean, there was no way to make it your own. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, uh, but so there are a couple of us were the, the, the Strat players, but when, when uh, it came time for me to play guitar, I, I just duplicated Mike Dennis's rig, uh, exactly the pro reverb, everything on 10, got me a 1966 Stratocaster 
And uh, that was really a, a great bit of, of, you know, the influence on me from Mike. It's sort of Roy through Mike. Wow. And a bit of Gatton too. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I aimed for a little bit more very technique, I would say. So what, when, when did you kind of jump from the, the local stage to the, to the bigger stage? Was it, was it Rodney or was it before that? Did you work with Nils Lofgren as a keyboard player? <laughs> yeah, I was a recovering keyboard player. <laughs> uh, yeah, in uh, 81, um, a mutual friend of ours, who was uh, 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 Nils's crew, uh, knew that Nils was looking for a keyboard player for a European tour. And of course, Nils was really big in Europe. He could, he could do that there. Um, and uh, I was playing guitar, but I, you know, it was a good gig. So I woodshed it. I rented out a, a studio room somewhere with a piano and learned all this stuff and played my, my, my butt off and got the audition. And uh, so, yeah, I did a couple of tours with Nils. And in fact, I noticed the other day, something showed up on the internet of Nils Lofgren and me playing at what they refer to as the Roxy. I don't know that there was ever a Roxy in Washington, DC. I suspect it might've been the, um, the Bayou, but it's just me and Nils. Wow. Um, and I'm playing keyboards and guitar and he's playing guitar and keyboards and singing. Uh, I have no recollection of that gig at all <laughs> but there you are <laughs> there i am <laughs> so did uh, did nils were you already kind of formed as a player by that point did, did nils did his style rub off on you at all because again another strat guy with a thumb pick was there any you know? yeah yeah I, no i i was formed i pretty much was was headed for for what i was going to be at that at, at that time um yeah, yeah, the thumb pick thing. It's funny, I didn't even know Nils was a thumb pick player, but I would go to Washington Music. I think I told you this the other day, go to Washington yeah. Music, get the good Hercos. Yeah. See if I could find the ones that were the right length and all that. And it was always cleaned out because Nils had been there the day before and he'd gotten all the good ones. Yeah. But no, I mean, Nils was great to work with. I had, I had so much fun on that gig. He was a great boss. And just a great guy and a wonderful player, of course. So, uh, but no, I think I was pretty much doing my thing at that point. Backing up a bit, who were some of your major influences, guys that really, uh, you know, helped, you know, that were, yeah, yeah, that were big influences on you? Well, I, for one, Mike Dennis uh, right. was really, really important. Um, I don't know, there were a lot of guys that, 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 whose material I probably loved. Um, I was a real Brit guy. I mean, uh, Clapton, Beck, and Page, definitely huge in my life. Um, Robbie Krieger, I thought yeah. the first few Doors records were pretty amazing. And I saw, they were the first live band I ever saw and they were great. And Krieger was wonderful. Um, I think he's uh, one of those kind of under the radar guys, he deserves to be in the top 100 or whatever list you got going for sure. Um, Larry Carlton, I mean, his work in the 70s for me with Joni and Steely Dan, unparalleled, uh, certainly an inspiration. Uh, I don't think you could ever imitate him. What an incredibly lyrical player that guy is. Um, 
Beck to a certain degree, I guess. Yeah. Page. Uh, trying to think if there was anybody else on the, the outskirts that. Uh, you, uh, you, I think you've also mentioned Andy Summers at different times, saying, you know, like his note stacking and things like that. Yeah. He, he ought to be in the top, you know, top 100, certainly top 50, what have you. Uh, yeah, but that, and, that, and that was an influence on me pretty late on in the D.C. years, I, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Um, I played in a couple of bands where um, I was like pretty much the only guitar player. So you had to come up with a style that which Andy Summers was great, you know, with sonic stuff. Um, yeah, uh, but I'm not sure that he, you, you would count him as a real influence. Right. Say. So let's move up to you, know, you hitting kind of the a bigger stage. So after after Nils, the, the next kind of big thing, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is Rodney is playing with Rodney Crowell. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So how did well, you hook up with Rodney? Well, go ahead. Well, there was a band called Switchblade, which was the last band that I played with in the D.C. area with any regularity. And it was, um, they, they, they sort of jokingly called it Psychobilly. It was a rockabilly band that was kind of bursting out to be a little bit more, a little bit rocker, a little bit more contemporary. Um, a bunch of songs by the bass player, Johnny Castle, some really fun material, <laughs> totally sexist and politically incorrect, um, but a lot of fun and a, a shot at playing a lot of guitar. Well, there was a management team that had handled Mary Chapin Carpenter and who was also from our neck of the woods. Um, and they put together a like a five song demo production deal and a honest to goodness um, showcase in New York City that was uh, attended by every major label. And uh, one of the guys that was there from Sony, a VP at Sony, is a guy named uh, Rick Chertoff, who at the time was finishing up Cyndi Lauper's first big record. And he had been a part of a lot of great projects there, the Hooters, um, Patti Smythe with Scandal. Um, um, I can't recall everybody, but he, he was a bigwig there. And he liked the band just fine, but didn't know what to do with them, he said. But he liked me and a couple of years later, he called me up and to do some pre-production on a Patti Smythe record. And I would go up there maybe once every couple of months for a week and we'd sit and run arrangements down and stuff like that. Nothing really gelled. But then um, he got word that there's this uh, singer songwriter from Nashville who wanted to get out of the country market and into something a little more broad and it was Rodney. And Rick introduced the two of us in, uh, in May, 1986, up in New York at the record plant. And, you know, we instantly connected. And uh, it, was, it, it really was, it was an instantaneous thing of, okay, this is somebody I can work with. And uh, yeah. Yeah, both, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like both he and, and Roseanne you know, were, were wanting to push toward uh, a crossover record and they were wanting to kind of leave the country market. And, and that was, you know, uh, Rodney's street language and, and Roseanne's like rhythm and romance. They were both kind of pushing uh, in more of a pop rock, you know, kind of uh, direction. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And 
I, I call it the tail end of the project. We only did one song for that street language record. I did uh, Let Freedom Ring. And it was, you know, my strat through, <laughs> through a couple of marshals turned on, you know, all the way up. Um, and that was the sort of thing Rodney was willing to experiment with at that point. It didn't really take, obviously, but uh, right. Yeah, they, they both were seeking other things. Yeah. So then, so how soon after that do you become, uh, you know, he and, and Roseanne, you know, his wife at the time, their, you know, their touring player, did that happen instantaneous or? It happened real fast. Uh, I mean, Rodney and I hit it off so, so quickly. Um, so that, that was May. We probably worked, oh, I know, we worked through the summer. <laughs> the first video uh, I ever did, which, which with Rodney, I guess it was maybe his first video too, uh, was for Let Freedom Ring, which of course didn't really go anywhere, but we shot that video in New York in a, just a steamy hot summer. So I guess the fall came and uh, Rodney brought me down to Nashville introduced me to Roseanne, all of us kind of hit it off and started this little creative uh, swirl. Uh, and I, I gave Rodney the name of a couple of friends of mine from up in DC, uh, Vince Santoro, drummer, great drummer, great singer. Right. Um, and uh, later on, Jim Hansen, who was a great bass player and singer. Um, but we did a tour that in 86. So yeah, it happened very fast. Met in May, did the video in the summer toured in the fall and at the end of that tour the following year 87 started working on um, uh, king's record shop right for roseanne so now again touring with rodney his his albums up to that point had had james burton and albert lee and you know all these other guys and so how, how did you uh, what was the attitude toward that as far as rodney was concerned about you having to imitate that or did you have the freedom it, it looks like you had the freedom to kind of come up with your own parts on those songs you didn't have to really imitate what they had done absolutely no Rodney has always been and always will be just whatever it is that you feel you know that that's what it's going to be you don't have to you don't have to learn anybody's licks back to back or anything yeah so uh King's Record Shop uh I guess uh, Tony Brown produced that is that correct? Or did Rodney produce that? I think Rodney produced that. Yeah, okay. Rodney produced that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and I, uncredited, co-produced it as well. I mean, I did a lot of the arranging and stuff at that point. Okay. I think that was, that was an important thing for, for, um, for me with Rodney and Roseanne was that, I, that I, I came from an arranging place and would help them, you know, structure songs and all that. Not that they were incapable of it. I mean, obviously they're both brilliant, you know, but um, it was, you know, they were also wide open for stuff. And I was bringing in, I think some ideas that were, you know, non-Nashville type ideas that that they were liking. And, you know, when we worked up the stuff for, uh, for Rodney's uh, Diamonds and Dirt, that was stuff that was, I think, tweaked on the road we you know we'd learn the stuff on the road and and, and tweak it and, and uh yeah and and same with Roseanne what was it like uh you know recording for the first time in Nashville you know and with those players uh well it was great Barry Beckett was playing keyboards and yeah 
that was, you know, uh, one of my heroes, of course. And uh, uh, it was great. <laughs> it was really good. Um, Billy Joe Walker uh, was part of the band. He was great. Michael Rhodes, who was on so many projects at that time that, uh, that we did together. Yeah. Um, it was great. It was, it was wonderful. You know, they and, say uh, if you can't get any better, play with people that are better than you. And that was definitely the case. <laughs> and at this, you, you, this kind of got a little bit into the gear, the gear stuff, but what, 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 what guitars and amps and stuff were you using at this point, you know, playing on those records? I owned two guitars. <laughs> <laughs> what were they? The, the 66 Strat and then the white Strat that some people recognize that, uh, was the body the body and all that was uh uh 56 but it were, the electronics appear to have been 63 okay uh and um, as i was saying to you the other unfortunately the neck pickup it died the original one or the one that it came with died i replaced it with something uh, a friend of mine matt down the road at action music put in uh, a comparable replacement and uh but those were the two guitars. That, yeah. that was pretty much it. And then I, I did. I bought from Sam Bush um, a 1956 Esquire that uh, pickup died somewhere in the wiring. It was it was screwed up. And Joe Glazer very kindly said, "Well, you know, Jerry Reed uh, had me put some modern pickups in his Telecaster, and he didn't didn't want to hang on to the old pickups. And I've been holding on to them for quite a few years. I mean." they would work great in your Esquire if you want to tell it. <laughs> and uh, so we did that. And that was, that was my third guitar, uh, yeah. my third really good guitar, you know, yeah. proper. So you've got three guitars. What, what amps and pedals were you using on those records? Hmm. Well, you know, Boss Echo has always been my thing. So, compressor, you know, the, 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 the Boss compressor to a, a certain degree. Um, I'm trying to remember what I used amp wise. At one time I had a, a silver face twin, which forgive me, I mean, they are usually awful amps, I think, particularly yeah. for guitar, you know, for something you want to turn up. But this guy, Keith Campbell <laughs> in DC had sold me this one that was unlike any I've ever, you put it on three and it sounded kind of like a great Vibrolux. And, uh, it was probably that. Uh, I think I had a Fender concert amp maybe at one point. I literally mm. am not sure. I don't yeah. recall. So, I did have a Fender, a Fender 212 cabinet that I use sometimes. Yeah. So basically you had those two or three Fender guitars, the two Strats and the Esquire, and you had a couple Boss pedals and you had a, a Fender amp of some sort, you know, yeah. Silver Face Twin, something like, which is a very simple rig. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, other guitar players are coming like, hey, man, I really, I really dig your simple rig. And then they bring in, you know, Lincoln Center yeah. <laughs> among his amps. <laughs> so you mentioned the Diamonds and Dirt. And uh, on, on Diamonds and Dirt, it was really, uh, it was interesting because your use of the tremolo bar on the Strat in kind of a clean way and kind of a really interesting way, kind of doing some interesting dive bombs and then doing, you know, like pedal steel type bends and stuff like that. <laughs> what, where was that coming from? Was that just coming from your imagination or? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see what'll happen. What, what happens if we do this? <laughs> right.
One, two. Yeah, because yeah, well, I, I was kind of winding towards a little something of what Beck does. I not consciously at all at the time, and I don't think that I. I'm not sure that I didn't listen to Jeff Beck until Commotion and Emotion. Okay. Several years back, along with Ronnie Scott's live at Ronnie Scott's, you know, and Beck has this thing where he's using the whammy bar. Right. That's kind of what I was doing. It was a different a different take on it, but yeah. using the the whammy bar as an expressive thing for you know half steps, whole steps, whatever dive bombs too occasionally, but but trying to make it part of the sound, you know, yeah. the expressiveness of it. You know, it's interesting on that Diamonds and Dirt album. That was kind of one of the first times people had been exposed to the strat being used in, you know, in that kind of clean chicken picking thing and, and the use of the tremolo bar like that. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And where did all those like open string, you know, fast, you know, licks and stuff, where, where was that coming from? Just again, out, out of your mind, just trying to I have <laughs> the right no, thing for the track or? <laughs> I have no idea. If I, if I heard it in my head, I tried to play it. And I, often that was, that was a thing. I mean, I would hear a certain kind of thing and, realize that I didn't have the technique to do it, but then I would sit down and work it out, figure out how do I get, how do I make it do this? And yeah. Yeah. So you, you continue to, to, so then you're of course touring and recording with both Roseanne and, and Rodney. And so that's kind of a neat situation where you're playing on the records, you're doing some arranging. And as far as arranging, are you mainly arranging instruments or are you arranging vocals too, or? Not so much the vocals, but, but structure, song structure, you know, I'm a big fan of like uh, solos being part of the arrangement. You know, sometimes when it comes time for a solo, maybe modulate or put some different changes or what have you. And yeah, I, it was mainly structural stuff, mainly structural stuff. You know, and like with the cicadas, uh, I know that was a big leap in time, but right. I, Rodney would give me a song or Rodney would have a song floating around and I would do a bunch of things to it. And I remember being very influenced by the, the Beatles help period and the flat seven chord and all that. And I would, I would make chord changes. A lot of it was chord substitution and bass movement for me. Okay. A lot of the arrangement from there, but you know, something that say John Leventhal does beautifully, where your second verse doesn't necessarily have to have the exact same changes as the first verse. Maybe you put a little wrinkle here and there and where, where the bass moves or what have you. Oh, yeah. So you continue with Rodney and Roseanne and, uh, you know, of course those Kings Record Shop and Diamonds and Dirt were huge records for both of them. Yeah, yeah. And, and then their, their follow-up records didn't do as well because everyone wanted, you know, the, I'm sure the labels all wanted part two, right, exactly. as, as they always do. If you have a hit, you got to put out part two. And, and you know, Roseanne didn't do that at all. Right. You know, she had a very introspective, you know, record and that was uh, acoustic and had, you know, you had some real interesting uses of echo and uh, it almost seemed like there was an influence of um, African music 
like uh, Paul Simon's Graceland and and some of that in in some of your playing? Huh, I, I, that's certainly possible because Graceland was probably a, a contemporary uh, with that period of time that we were working up interiors. Um, I, I, I certainly not consciously, but right. very but very possibly because that was in the wind. Uh, you know, the sounds of the guitars, the high life, and all that stuff. Right. Um, yeah. Possible. Yeah. So, so how does Sean Colvin come into the picture? Well, she was, I guess, Roseanne was not exclusively a country artist, of course. She was more of a pop singer-songwriter. Um, and sharing that field would have been Sean at that time, you know, in, in the public eye. But I remember meeting Sean at the bottom line in, in, in New York on a, a Roseanne gig. And I think, I think Sean was asked to come up and, and, and sit in on a song. Uh, and so Sean was real aware of me. I, 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 there was a New York connection with Rodney Roseanne. Uh, it was sort of their, their other side. And, um, oh, and, and Rick Chertoff, the producer who introduced me to Rodney also introduced me to a guy named Stuart Lerman who has produced a ton of records that I've worked on and so there was, there was a New York connection. And of course, living in DC, I would just get on the train and come to New York, did a fair amount of work there. Um, and Sean was part of the New York scene there. So that was probably where she heard of me, um, the way it, we actually hooked up to, to record was through Larry Klein, who, boy, all the circuitous. Yes, <laughs> Joni Mitchell and yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, jo Joni Mitchell's husband at the time. Um, we had hooked, Rodney had hooked up with Larry through Bobby Columbi, who was a Sony A&R guy at that point, I guess. And so we did three songs with Larry there. And then Larry's next project was, I think at that time, was uh, Fat City, which was Sean's second um, record. And Sean sort of requested to work with me and it, because we were already working together with Rodney and Larry, that was very natural that uh, we would do that. And then we would play uh, to promote Fat City as a trio. Um, did a couple of gigs here and there and it went over really well and was really a, a fun thing. And that, that became a thing, the trio with Larry and, and Sean. City's a uh, that has you know, round of blues on there, which that's that's a, a really great solo. Where a lot of guys might have played something with some drive and played single note lines, you played a lot of double stops with a clean sound. Right. Yeah. That and that's uh, wouldn't have been the most common thing, especially during that era. I mean, it really made the the solo pop out because it's like, hey, this guy, you know, where's the where's the distortion and the and the heavy <laughs> echo and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so was that a conscious decision on on your part of that you know I'm, 
is this just me doing my thing or I'm trying to be different or you wanted to play harmonized things, which of course don't work as well when you have a bunch of distortion on there? You know, once again, I, I really couldn't tell you, yeah. what, you know, where it came from. I mean, it, it doesn't sound unusual to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So then, uh, so did you record or play first with, uh, with Sean? We recorded first, uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to say. I, yes, we recorded first because the, the first time we ever played live was actually at the Troubadour. They had a, uh, it was a big record release thing at the Troubadour. And it was us with a variety of musicians coming and going, Richard Thompson, um, uh, Crosby and Nash, uh, oh. I can't, uh, Booker T, a bunch of people that had participated or were at least peripherally involved with the making of that record came and sang and did a song or two with us. And then we went up as a trio to, oh, was it the American Music Hall? Something in San Francisco. That, that, that's, that is in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah and then we, we did a show up there as a trio. We might have done a trio one, one or two other times, but then, uh, then we toured to promote the record, a full-fledged uh, committed trio. And then I did um, the covers record with her, the first covers record with her, and then we toured behind that. Um, which I believe is Austin City Limits. Um, Sean Colvin just recently showed up on YouTube. I had never seen it before. Yes. Um, and that was touring behind, that was touring behind Fat City and we were working, we were preparing arrangements, I think for the covers record at that point. And you produced the covers album? Part of it, yeah, about half of it. Okay. And how did that come about? Was that was that one of your first big productions? I guess, yeah, I suppose so. Credited I, with Rodney and Roseanne, that stuff was co-produced and by me. Although I don't remember if they were credit if I was credited. Some stuff I was, some I wasn't. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, we, we just she she needed a record to release. She hadn't written anything, and she was known for doing great covers, great, great cover versions of songs. It just seemed a logical thing to do and a good way to sort of, okay, let's not have to worry about, you know, starting from scratch on, a, you know, written record, an entire, you know, bunch of material. So uh, yeah, it, was, it, it seemed a logical thing to do. And we did that mostly out in LA. And a, a small sidetrack on on gear. By this point, it looked like on the the '66 Strat, which you played a lot. It seemed like you changed the the pickups out to EMGs. How did? Why did that happen? Because <laughs> uh, I was doing a record in Nashville at a studio called The Castle. I don't know if it's still there. Probably it not. is. It, it is. is. Yeah. And um, we were doing a ballad for somebody, and the the RF was so bad that I couldn't use my Strat. So I borrowed one from, from Larry Byron, bless his heart. <laughs> and he had EMGs on it and it sounded great. And I said, okay, I'm gonna have to do that to one of my guitars. So I did it to the 66 as opposed to the 56, so. Yeah. Do you also have the mid-range boost on there too or is it just the regular controls? Regular, regular control. Okay. All right. So then we also get into you starting to really do a lot of session work in Nashville. I mean, you're, you're doing session work everywhere, but you, you kind of, you know, start, and I, I'm guessing that was through Tony Brown. Yes. Yeah. Tony was definitely the, 
the conduit <laughs> to get into all that. Yeah. And, and you were being flown because again, you live in the DC area and you're being, you know, flown into Nashville. Of course, this was a different era and, and, you know, budgets were uh, such that they could uh, afford to, uh, to fly in a player. Yeah. And why were you, why do you think you were flown in? Just because I wasn't, you know, another one of the guys that does all the records, you know, I, right. something a little different, I guess, uh, you know, and I think my playing was different enough, at least at that time that, that it had something to offer. Um, but yeah, they were, they were flying me down like a couple times a month. And of course, those days they were doing records in a week. <laughs> so um, a lot of records in a year. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, Winona Judd. So you know, of course, she had you know been in the duo with her mom, and then you know they they went in a different direction, you know, with her her solo albums and much more in a kind of R and B you know influenced, uh, mm -hmm. and then of course still with the uh, Don Potter being involved, the great you know of course a great guitar player in general, but especially a great acoustic player. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah. So tell tell us about how you ended up working working with Winona and Don Potter and uh, and I guess well, Brett Mayer. Yeah, I mean again, didn't Tony produce that stuff, right? Right. Yeah. First, certainly the first couple of records. Tony, you know, Tony said, "Come on, Stuart, yeah. let's, let's go work with Y." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and of course uh, that was a great band. Uh, yeah, Don Potter, what an amazing player, and uh, Willie Weeks. Yeah, you know, just uh, fabulous stuff. Yeah, and her first record I remember was very much um, done in un uncharacteristically. Uh, that what, it, what her stuff wasn't done in a week. You know, uh, there were groups of songs, and they were really looking for a sound for her. And I think you can sort of hear that on her first solo record that there's a lot of it's kind of all over the map. Um, the next one, Tell Me Why, seems a little bit more of a piece. Right. Uh, and it was done, I think, a little more quickly. Yeah. And are you still pretty much using the same gear, the, the Strata Fender amp and some pedals? Yeah, pretty much. I, I started doing some stuff with stereo. Um, oh, another amp that's probably showed up around then is uh, my 63, what used to be a chocolate brown 63 um uh super amp okay no reverb no, yeah. it's like a deluxe with no reverb basically is what it is right Intense. and I, I started using that in conjunction i think with that twin that i mentioned wow for some stereo stuff and yeah because the those brown amps tend to have be a little bit more mid-rangey so that would be a good complement for that twin yeah, it, it was. It was. I mean, even if you weren't doing the stereo thing, just in terms of the sonics, yeah, of, of, of that mid-range fullness, yeah. Yeah. So basically, the the Strats and the Esquire, you know, those two amps and some uh, and some Boss pedals. Yeah, <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. And and again, to, to contrast with the fact that most session guys would have shown up with a trunk, you know, full of guitars. Oh they would have had 10 different amps. They would have had a rack, not a pedal board, you know, at this point. So this was a huge departure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, I guess it was. I mean, it was what tended to work for me. Interesting tale about when I first, I think the first session that Tony had me play on. Oh gosh. What was his name? James. 
He's a guitarist. Was he a guitarist or a producer or what? No, no, he was a singer-songwriter um, okay. that, that Tony was producing tracks on. And at the time, there was soundstage studios and there was front stage and backstage. And um, uh, Tony worked out of backstage and what is the guy who's <laughs> my, my age is, is telling here, uh, who handled MCA before Tony, uh, famous oh. producer. Uh, yes, why, why I'm, uh, oh my goodness. Yes, <laughs> famously Garth, Garth Brooks got rid of him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, he, he was the head of Capitol Records. I, I'm completely blanking on him too. He, uh, oh my goodness. I know, I, yeah. I, this is terrible. Yes. Edit this out. <laughs> It'll be fine. Every, everyone will comment in it, you know, saying uh, it was, you know, so and so. So well, at any uh, rate, yes. any, Jimmy Bowen. Jimmy Bowen. Yes. Thank you. You Jimmy saved Bowen. us. Jimmy Bowen had front stage, Tony had backstage. But Jimmy Bowen had was so thrilled with this whole thing of not having any amps or anything. Everything yes. was direct. Yes. Into the board, including drums all of it and sounded like it. I mean, yes. you know, th those records did not sound <clears throat> good. Um, but the the first sessions we did there, James House is the artist we, we did this with. Um, Tony said, yeah, come on, just go ahead and get a, get a rental amp or whatever, you know, whatever you need and we'll, 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 we'll deal with what we have to deal with, you know. And um, so I got there to the session and we're getting set up and there was a, a Fender amp of some kind in there that I'd ordered. And the engineer, the second, the second engineer was setting up mics, was staring at the amplifier and just, and he had a, <laughs> had a, you know, microphone in his, in his, in his hands. He's looking at the amp and he goes, where do I put this? <laughs> yes. yes. Be because the, Jimmy had completely changed the the landscape of Nashville sessions to where it was the norm to go direct for everyone and it was a huge battle for the guitar players to get to use amps again so it would have been very usual for the for the engineer to be like where do I put a microphone on an amp no he had, idea he had never seen he had never had to mic a guitar amp before in his life yeah That's... and he had done many records you know so right yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're working with Tony Brown, you did, you're doing Winona and then, uh, then Tony calls you to play on the Vince Gill records. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess that was probably T Tony's call. I already knew Vince. Vince, bless his heart, had to open up for Rodney. I think we were touring in Canada for Diamonds and Dirt and Vince was the opening act. <laughs> And uh, so I, I knew him at least a little. He was, he was always, uh, he, he, he treated me very nicely. He, he would say, hey man, I really, I really like a lot of what you're trying to do up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very, very nice. Yeah, yeah. What a sweetheart, yeah, I mean, yeah. Amazing, amazing guitar player and singer. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting, you know, situation. You're, you're being called to play on a guitar player's record and, uh, 
so so how do the sessions go down you know like in the the tracking or so obviously are you, so I'm, I'm assuming you're part of the the tracking and and yeah, what's yeah. what's is vince playing or singing what's he doing during the track my recollection is that he mainly concentrated on singing yeah uh, I, okay. I he may have played the occasional guitar or but I, you know all of the solos were overdubbed so basically all all we were doing was you know support and whatever sort of instrumental hooks and themes had to happen. Yeah. And then he uh, recorded his solos later. Yeah, pretty pretty sure it was really concentrating on the singing. Yeah. And, and just to kind of give credit where credit is due, because a lot of people think that some of these intros, they they thought that, you know, Vince played them and, and, and you played them. Like, you know, what the cowgirls do is, is one example of that, where you came up with the intro on that. And I still believe in you would be another one um what about um uh, let's see but now i'm now i'm blanking uh, <laughs> one more last chance was that was that one that you played or vince played or i played it i i don't remember uh, does that have a signature lick up front i don't I... yeah it has it has a little bit of a signature lick at the beginning so it, yeah so but basically you you played a fair number of of kind of intros and then Vince would play the guitar solo. Is that kind kind of the the tendency? Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, I don't so think you, I ever played a solo on a Vince record. I know that. <laughs> right, because it's, it's it's his record, but uh, still, that's uh, you know very very interesting. Again, you're still using the the you know the the same rig you've been using the uh, the Strat and the. Pretty much, yeah. I, I'm sure I probably had acquired a few other guitars, but not. Not many. Now, are you being called much to play acoustic at this point, or are you still mainly doing electric guitar? <sighs> there were some circumstances there for a while where I was, I was playing a fair amount of acoustic, but um, electric was really mainly what people would hire me for. Yeah. So then we get up to the uh, the Sean Colvin, uh, you know, a few small repairs that you didn't play on, but then you, uh, you toured with her again with the, the trio format again. Yeah. Well, actually we did a couple of tours. We did a full band tour uh, for that record and her next one, we did a full band tour too. Pretty brief ones, really, you know, just kind of to promote the record. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we did, we, we, we toured a lot of, a lot live. Um, for those records, yeah. And when when you're on the eleventh, all produced stuff that he that he played on, how much pressure did you feel to reproduce exactly what John had done? I didn't feel pressure to, but I felt inclined to because the parts were great, you know. And uh, yeah, I'm it, it, like even to the point I really went to some trouble to work out the front of uh, Sunday came home. There's a little so there's a bendy there's a bendy violin you know fiddle right trying to work that into the uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I I you know I didn't it was it was interesting when asking him about that that intro and it was the fact that he had taken a, a fiddle and or a violin and he had just you know plucked it and slid up and, and finger picked on a on a violin that's a right. interesting part and it, it, you tended to kind of play it up higher and use some chorus on there to kind of give you some of that uh, yeah. modulation yeah. of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh...
Yeah, and then yeah. you would you would play those octaves uh, to to give it that bigger sound. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it was fun. It it was fun to take those parts and try to to try to get as many of them in as possible. Certainly, certainly in that trio, you had like a great rhythm section of of Larry Klein and Sean. Between the two of them, they were like they were like a little orchestra, and that left a lot of empty space for me to do things and just with like John's production on records you know second verse may be quite different than the first one quarterly or whatever or certainly in vibe and then you might want to look for another sound the fun for me with that trio was trying to duplicate you know the the, the effect of the record without necessarily having to play every single note yeah and John's parts and playing are so beautiful you know did you uh Looking at footage from that era, it looks it looks like you had uh, started using a volume pedal by this point. Was uh, when did you start using the volume pedal? Well, you know, forgive me uh, because I let you uh, misspeak. Uh, no, in no. fact, my, my my I was using the volume pedal very early on. Uh, okay. I think I think I, that was part of my rig when I joined up with Rodney. I think I can't okay. imagine it wouldn't have been okay. So yeah, my fault on that. Yeah, uh, th that was also a part of the rig, and 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 a chorus pedal, often, uh, tremolo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and I guess you were using the volume pedal for for swells and things like that to fill yeah. things out, especially with playing in, in that type of format. You know, sure. kind of yeah. giving a little bit of a wash of of sound. You know, at certain points. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, so I guess we get up to uh, to Don Henley then. So, yeah, yeah. Which that came about because the tour with Sean. Gosh, was that? Yeah, it was the last the last of her her touring in ninety seven. Ninety seven is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the trio we were doing some Lilith Fair stuff. And then doing our own gigs as well. And towards the end of that touring, right before we went to Australia, which was our last tour, um, let's say spring to early summer of 97, we played the John Ford Amphitheater. It was an outdoor amphitheater uh, in LA. We did at least two nights, maybe three. And Henley was there one of those nights. And I guess he sort of liked what he saw. And I don't recall if it was months or a year. Uh, eventually I got a call from, from him to see if um, maybe about working on a solo album for him, which he was in the midst of uh, with, with uh, Stan Lynch out in LA. And so, because he had seen me with Sean, that led to, to the thing with Don. He was already a huge Sean Colvin fan. Uh, but um, so I, I came out to LA for about a week, worked with Stan and Don and very little of what we did that week uh, made the final cut. And there were just a ton of songs that were up for, you know, development. And, but we also, the three of us, Stan and, and Don and I um, wrote a song, put a song together, recorded a demo. And I think that that was kind of, a good thing for Don. He was confident that that I could maybe co-write if needed or whatever. Um, 
And so, yeah, we, you know, we got along great. Uh, it was a little while later that the Eagles thing came up, but, um, uh, did, did you do a tour with Don before that, or was the first touring that you did was the Eagles? The, the first touring I did was with the Eagles. Um, Don actually at the end of the sessions that we did in LA said, if you're ever interested, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing some touring, you know, maybe we could get you to come out and play. And at the time I had so many records that I was working on that it didn't make sense at that point, but I was, you know, incredibly grateful to be asked. <clears throat> but then, you know, the thing with uh, Mr. Felder happened and, uh, yeah. I got the call for that. So the uh, one of the records that you were working on at, uh, at that point when Don had asked you was uh, Rodney's uh, Houston Kid. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's a, you know, quite, that's a solid effort. <laughs> that's in some ways, that's my favorite record with Rodney. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a it's a great album. Yeah. Really good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So. How did, how did that come about where, you know, because again, Rodney had been such a, you know, producer, you know, of his own albums in the past. And then of course there was this stuff with Tony. So was it, uh, was it easy for Rodney to kind of turn over the keys to someone else or is he, you know? Well, you know, I, Rodney and I have been collaborative really always. Uh, I mean, yeah. I've always had input in the arrangements and stuff and he's always welcomed it, you know? Um, I don't think there wasn't a sense of shifting gears with the uh, with the Houston kid, other than the fact that we weren't going for um, country, we weren't aiming it for a market or anything like that. We we're just making a record, right? Um, but it was just a continuation of what we had already been doing. Uh, you know, he and I had we are collaborators when we work together, and uh, that's always been the case, and seems to work out. <laughs> yeah, but that was that was ton tons of fun making that record, that Houston kid record. Yeah, and uh, I guess a, a standout would be, uh, is it Wandering Boy or Wandering Boyd, which? It's one. It's Wandering Boy. <laughs> okay, I've seen it, you know, yeah, misspelled I, 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 a number I, I, of times. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is that? We didn't really give him a proper name that I recall. <laughs> okay, yeah, your uh, your work on, yeah, the, the soloing at, at the end is just, uh, is beautiful. So oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. That's yeah. funny. At that time, I think I had said to Rodney, you know, I am so sick of guitar solos. If I never have to play another one as long as I live, it'll be too soon. <laughs> but that just was begging for it. <laughs> yeah. It just happened. And so there you go. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's like harpsichord and there's all sorts of interesting things on that on that on that track that uh, you put on oh. there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So then, you know, of course, you know, as, as you said, there was a, there was a split in the old uh, Eagles and then all of a sudden there was an open position. And so, <laughs> yeah. and so then who contacts you first? Oh, wow. Uh, Don, yeah. Don, Don's, Don's very nice about that. I mean, if there's a serious thing to be done, he'll, he'll do it himself. You know, he'll, he'll talk to you directly and, you know, he won't, necessarily have his people do it uh right. yeah he i was in nashville um and rodney and i were rehearsing with a guy named randall mullen i believe it is was his last name australian guy used to play with shania twain okay good, guy, good guitar player 
And the three of us were doing a little bit of a touring thing to promote, uh, I don't know what, uh, but also, well, well, I was rehearsing with Rodney in Nashville. And at the end of that rehearsal period, I got together with Sean and Sean and John Leventhal put together the band to promote her newest record, which was the follow-up to A Few Small Repairs called A Whole New You. And we got that record worked up plus a few songs and did an Austin City Limits. Right. Which kicked off a tour that led to Los Angeles, the final gig of which was at the Roxy Theater there. We had a day off. And the next day I started the tour with Rodney um, with this trio at the Roxy again. And then we went off to do a few weeks worth. Don had called me while I was rehearsing with Rodney and said, you know, think about it. Think of if this is maybe something you want to do. And on my day off in Los Angeles, I had to go play for Glenn. You know, Don said, I want you to come play for my buddy. And, you know, yeah. And went and played with uh, for Glenn and he liked it. And there she went. <laughs> do you remember what tune you played for Glenn or tunes? Well, I worked up about 10 at their request and I know we did Peaceful Easy Feeling. Probably Take It Easy would have been the next one. Uh, and we got about halfway through um, New Kid in Town. And nobody could remember the changes except for me. <laughs> <laughs> so was was uh, so was this just you and, and Glenn, or is this a rhythm section? Oh, or? No, no, it was it was uh, Timothy. Joe Joe was the only one who wasn't there. Okay, so this is Scott yeah. Craigo, who who is you know the drummer for Don, and also you know with the Eagles and all that. Yeah, Scott, uh, Timothy, Glenn, Don, and myself. Okay, so you actually yeah, it was a it was a real audition. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was funny because I think initially Don offered me the gig sort of outright, but then said, well, you know, you got to come and play with my partner, you know, make sure he's happy. And yeah. So then how much pre-production, I mean, how, how much preparation are you doing once? Okay, let me back up. So how hard of a, of a decision was it to take the gig with the Eagles? Harder than you might think. Um it wasn't exactly a no-brainer uh, because I knew that it meant playing the same thing every night, parts that I didn't create. Um, but also, I mean, I, I realized that there was perhaps the potential that there could be some writing and recording and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was so used to being my own boss. Um, and working collaborative in a collaborative way with other people, sort of as an equal. And I knew that if I took this gig, I was going to have four bosses and, yeah. uh, and you know, be restricted into what I could do. Um, you know, of course, I decided to do it in the end, and I have no regrets because um, we did all of those things did happen, and, and it was a good thing. But I was a little nervous about giving up a lot of freedom. Right. And, you know, it's in some ways, it's like a Broadway show to where it's like there's an expectation of, of everyone knows all those guitar parts. And so if you don't play them, people will know it. Oh, yeah. Even, even the solos. I mean, you got a guy out there playing air guitar correctly. Right. 
<laughs> and you're going off script that he's going to be going yeah i paid how much to see this guy mess up the solo even though it was probably great yeah 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 so how much preparation did you have to do before rehearsals started oh my god that was it was it was a heap of work it was a heap yeah. of work and partly because i i had never met joe i didn't know joe at all yeah um I didn't really feel comfortable with the idea of calling Glenn up and saying, hey, Glenn, on uh, Already Gone, that second verse, that guitar lick, uh, is that you or is that Joe or is that Don Felder? I couldn't, I couldn't really imagine doing that. And of course, those would be the only two people that you would talk to to get, find out how, how the arrangement went. So I wound up having to really learn almost every guitar part on those records on about 30 or 40 songs, just in case. And uh, Although there was some help, the, the live record from 1980 was a big help because you kind of knew which side of the stereo Joe was on and, and which side uh, Don Felder was on and that made it a little easier. But And also um, uh, the, uh, the reprise, the- uh, Hell Freezes Over. Hell Freezes Over yeah. video was a big help. But, yeah. you know, uh, it, was, it was a ton of work, ton of yeah. work. And so uh, tonally, of course, you're having to cover different tones than you've had to in the past. So yeah. what did you what did you have to change to your gear to 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 cover eagle tones? Well, the distortion was really important. So uh, I used a rat initially yeah. for for anything that was distorted, but I I wasn't really happy with it for everything. It works great for one of these nights. Um, but for Hotel California and stuff, I, I have been using a red snapper, Minotone red snapper, yeah. um, which Shanks, what's it, is John Shanks? Is that? Yeah. It? Yeah. It turned me on to that. Um, very nice guy. Um, it's a real nice sort of tube sounding distortion. And so that was the primary thing. And of course, you know, I got a, more than one echo be, because there are different you know, programs you need to do for, for stuff. But um, that's really the biggest change was that. And and then I'd never had like a full-fledged, you know, pedal board that, uh, you know, we sort of had one built. It was built to order. Right. You know, I, just- Nothing I, I, I would want to do. I'm sorry? I, I, had, I had, you know, seen you like play with uh, Winona, you know, in Nashville, it was a, a TV taping. And I remember you coming out holding your strat and you were cradling a couple of pedals and you just put them down on the floor. <laughs> no pedal board. And so you're going from this, this guy to all of a sudden you've got a, you know, a real, you know, an honest to goodness pedal board. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 even the first pedal board I had was, uh, was, was just, spread all over the place it was not <laughs> glenn used to look at it and kind of refer to it as i think trail or trailer park <laughs> yes <laughs> how's the trailer park doing oh <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, and 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 you know that rig comes in handy and i've got a wawa if i need it and you know which i do on a couple of songs i think yeah. so and also uh, in, in you... and the voice voice box too the uh... yeah yeah so, and you, you also had to have, you had to have more guitars too. So. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I'd started to accumulate some guitars before before the Eagles. Um, uh, but yeah, this the Eagles gig, and everybody says, "Why do you need so many guitars?" Well, you know, the, one song wants a telly, and another song wants a three thirty-five, and you know, maybe you've got something tuned down a half step, or you've got something that's got a capo on it, or you have to have stuff that's ready to go at all times. And uh, I use all that stuff, and I'm glad to have it. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. seems like you've had a, a number of like Music Man guitars. You had one uh, you know like a, a double neck and then one that looks like it has kind of p90 type things that it looks like you use to cover kind of telecastery kind of things right yeah no their, their stuff has been great i they had they, they made the double neck for me specifically at which we didn't talk about this but it's you know it's reversed the next mo right. most of them have the 12 string what up top and then correct the thing on the bottom so i had them reverse that and there's a twin, there's a sister guitar, a black one uh, that, that goes on the road with this as well. Um, yeah, and th those are great. And uh, their, their necks feel great to me. They're the, the clean, they're really great for the clean stuff, but um, I, don't, I think the, 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 the humbucker, their, their version of a humbucker works pretty damn well too. Yeah, so back to the, you know, so now you're in rehearsals with the Eagles, you know, for your first tour. What type of input are you getting from 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 your bosses? Well, I gotta say they were pretty gentle with me. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm so neurotic. Uh, I'm sure I'm at least as neurotic as as Glenn was and Don is. Um, so I was probably overprepared. It's it, I didn't have every little thing. I mean, you know. Glenn might say, well, you know, your, your, your tone's too bright on that solo there, you know. And all of them would chime in from time to time when something needed a tweaking, but it was usually small stuff. But um, as you and I discussed, you know, Don and Glenn very much into the small stuff, into the detail. And those parts didn't come about, you know, casually. They didn't just sort of yeah. play the first thing that came into their heads. I mean, those, those are parts that have been worried over. And one of the nice things about that gig is getting inside all of those songs and seeing how they're put together and how structurally, beautifully they've, they've been arranged. Uh, and a lot of that is Glenn, who, whose nickname was the Lone Arranger at one time. <clears throat> and with, with, you know, with good reason. I mean, he, his ideas of arrangement were airtight. You know, he's, he really knew what he was doing with that stuff. So, yeah, it was it was it was worth spending that time. But nobody raked me over the coals, and Joe was as sweet as he could be to me and, and helpful. And uh, it was not as you know uh, insane as you might think at all. Yeah, and and again, Joe's doing what you know he's he's always done and then you're kind of you're having to cover Felder and of course original guitar player guitarist Bernie Ledden you're having to cover some of his parts and also some of Glenn's parts that that he had kind of handed off mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's <laughs> there's a full plate <laughs> yeah because they're they're stylistically quite different you kind of have the the b-bender stuff from which you don't I've never seen you use a b-bender I've never used one in my life <laughs> Yeah, so you're covering kind of the B-Bender stuff on Peaceful, Easy Feeling and other other tunes. And uh... Well, you know, it, it, when I was playing in the D.C. area, 
um, there was a fair amount of country music blended in. I mean, it was everything from Little Feet to uh, to the Eagles. Um, and I had, there was a certain level of country that I was comfortable with. And it was, you know, Bernie's style was not unknown to me. I mean, it, you know, Buchanan and Gatton played country style telly and all that. So um, I didn't have, I wasn't learning from scratch or anything on that. So, but yeah, I mean, you had to be able to go from that to uh, Hotel California. And, right. Yeah. So that's, that's pedal work, a lot of that, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, so the pedals are really kind of helping you out with that, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Particularly what about, with snapper. <laughs> yeah. So are you using guitar changes or, or EQ? What, you know, because again, you would talk about, uh, you, you said, you know, Glenn would say, you know, that that sounds a little too bright. I mean, are you having to remember to turn your tone control down on the guitar? How are you making these adjustments? Yeah, yeah. I mean, trying to try to do them on the fly. Um, I'm not into obviously not into programming stuff. So right. whatever happens is pretty much got to happen. Charlie, uh, our, our tech, my, my guitar tech, um, Steve Cohen, but we call him Charlie, uh, to differentiate him from the thousands of other Steve Cohens in the world. Um, Charlie will often have me, you know, it'll be in the right pickup with the right starting volume and all that kind of stuff too. So wow. that's a big help, but. You know, it's not, not too much. I'm so used to doing things on the fly anyway. It's 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 not 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 a big deal. Yeah. Let's talk about some of Glenn's, you know, guitar playing, because a lot of people don't realize the 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 things that he played that you you know people probably thought was played by someone else. Right. So one one of them is I can't tell you why, which is you know one of the coolest, you know, smooth, <laughs> great, you know, guitar parts on any of the Eagles stuff as as important to the to the song as the rest of the song i mean it's like what people remember it's what you hear you can it's a guitar solo you can hum you can yeah. listen um yeah uh, that was that was a big revelation uh was glenn's importance in the overall scheme of the eagles i mean it was really his band very much his band and he was the arranger he would really work up the sets um kind of run the rehearsals um, but what a great guitar player with a very deep pocket, um, great parts. You know, the other day I was listening to, um, Randy Newman's Little Criminals record, which is peppered with a great deal of Eagles inf information there, both vocally right. and instrumentally. Um, and check out Baltimore, which is Glenn playing guitar. The parts are simple, perfect. They're just, yeah. you can't do any better than that. And uh, it's just, I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, Randy Newman, who sp spoke at um, Glenn's uh, memorial, one of the things he said was, you know, he didn't think people realized how hard these guys actually like to work, you know, to get it really right. And uh, and Glenn was of that type, and you know Newman was really uh, deferentially uh, impressed. <laughs> yeah, Glenn seemed to have a, a un unlike most guitar players who love to change their gear and always getting new things. He seemed to have that little Fender Deluxe amp with a like a Vox speaker in it and a couple pedals, and he had that old black Les Paul Junior that had been modified. That was kind of his rig. 
And Deacon uses that rig to this day. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's funny too, because there's something wrong with the neck pickup. <laughs> and I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's like, it got to this state and it doesn't want to be operated on. It's just, here it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Lovely sounding guitar. Yeah. All right. So, and, and what kind of guitar input does Don give? You mean in the live stuff or? Yeah, in the context oh. of the Eagles. Well, I mean, it, it, he's actually, you know, pointed out some stuff to me about, you know, uh, you're playing that phrase a little wrong. It's that one little, that one little note over there is kind of a throwaway. That's not really that important. You don't have to spend that much time on that note, but, you know, play. Right. <laughs> or uh, don't do a gliss on that opening note on uh, the solo on New Kid or whatever. So then there was the history of the Eagles tour, which ended up being Glenn's last tour, but also it had uh, Bernie, you know, was Bernie Ledden was kind of brought back in, into the band, yeah. to, you know, tell, you know, of course, you know, which, which causes an interesting set of, uh, you know, not necessarily problems, but all of a sudden, because all these guitar parts have been worked out and his parts have all been farmed out already. And then he's kind of uh, claiming them back or how, how did that work out? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you got to let him play his parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it did create a little confusion. Just we weren't sure who was dancing with who or who was leading. Uh, um, yeah, Joe and I had to mix our, our, our stuff up a bit. Um, it took some doing. It, it took some doing. But, you know, but eventually the, the dust settled and everything was fine but uh yeah that was it was it was a little complex yeah and then was there any was there any hint that you know that glenn wasn't doing well you know physically no not really i uh, that 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 really blindsided everybody i think uh, uh, he had been taking medications i think for um rheumatoid arthritis i do believe um and I was always aware that, you know, he was doing stuff with his hands. He wasn't always really comfortable. And I think that his, you know, he would do a couple solos during the course of the night, but for the most part, I, I think that maybe he was happy to pass them on just so because of his hands, you know, that maybe we're not treating him so well. Yeah. So then there was the, uh, you know, the kind of memorial at the, at the, there was there was the performance at the Grammys with with Jackson Brown and and you and 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 Bernie and and that was kind of seen as being kind of the the last hurrah of the band at that point. I guess, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and so when did the idea come come up of uh, you know we're we're going to do this and we're gonna we're gonna get some other guys to come in? I don't know. I mean, no. uh, I you know I I ended up. I got a call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's what we're thinking, and yeah. rumors abounded, and this and that, and uh, but uh, you know, I'm out here on the East Coast, so I don't know what all went back in in, uh, yeah. in LA. But yeah. uh, oh, I think everybody's been glad for the most part. I mean, the shows have really been well received, and I didn't know that if people might resent the fact that you know we're doing it without one of the founding members. 
but um, the shows have gone really well. The audiences have been great. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Of course, now we're doing this thing. I hope the, the Hotel California start to finish um, with the orchestra and a choir and all that. And uh, hopefully that'll happen. Yeah. So your old buddy Vince gets, uh, gets brought in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did that seem like a, a strange twist of fate that all of a sudden you're playing in the Eagles with Vince, who you'd played on, you know, on his sessions back in the nineties? It was, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things in life that, uh, yeah, you never, never could have predicted. Uh, crazy. I'm, I'm glad he's there. I mean, he sings beautifully. He plays guitar great. A lot of his gig is, you know, finding where does that extra guitar come in, you know, and laying out when he has to. Um, right. But uh, it's a joy to be around him. And he just, you know, he brings his, he's so funny. He's such a funny guy. Uh, Lighthearted. Yeah. So, yeah, you're kind of alluding to the fact that he's had to uh, he's had to find his own space on on the on the guitar, which is kind of filled up between, you know, you and, and Joe. So, right. Yeah. 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 He, he's done. He's done fine with that. And you can also which I stumbled on. You can get a full complement here. Let's see. Uh, right. So it's which is weird. You it shouldn't really work because you got a shape like that, but it does manage to pick up. So if you hit if you if you strum across it lightly at the correct fret, you can kind of get that harmonic sound. Yeah, and you and you you have to sort of go <laughs> diagonally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no, are you using a Herco thumb pick? No, actually, this is an Ernie Ball. They, okay. uh, I think. I think they only have two sizes, and this is the larger of the two sizes. <clears throat> I don't know what they call it small and medium or medium and large, but uh, I think it's the largest one. And it's funny, they're, they're not real consistent. I used to have to pick out the best ones as far as how much protrusion you want. Um, and we told them, we, we found one that we really liked and asked them to make a duplicate. And for the most part, they're all, they're all quality control. They're all about the same length. Yeah. And again, this, this comes from a, you know, a, a flat picker asking a, a thumb picker about this, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem to, you know, I guess you get used to strumming and with, a, with a thumb pick. Cause I mean, so many people have a, a hang up when they try to use a thumb pick. Cause it's like, I can't strum with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I just always have, but I, I will confess when, if we're recording acoustic guitar and I'm strumming, <clears throat> strumming the acoustic, I'll use a flat pick because it, it, it's smoother. It's, it's, it's not as clunky. Yeah. This is a bit clunky. I mean, I can sort of 
make it seem like it's not clunky. But if I was trying to play that on an acoustic guitar in a track, it would it would probably stick out in an unpleasant way. When you're you know composing a solo, are you just are you just humming something in your head or something like that? Is that what it's based <laughs> on, or do you sing stuff, or what? Where does that come from? I don't know. I, I usually I just wait for inspiration and there's usually some kind of germ of, of an idea, a bit of a melody or something that starts off that gets me going. And then you just kind of, I don't know, you chase it. I, I, I don't know how to, yeah. how to describe it other than that. Okay. And uh, your strings, what kind of strings do you use? Ernie Ball, 10 to, 10 to 46 on almost everything, except for the, uh, the wonderful Esquire in Nashville uh, has a, uh, heavy bottom, skinny top, heavy bottom. Yeah. And you, you tend to, uh, am, am I correct in saying that you tend to have some guitars that are kind of spread out across the, the play? Well, you kind of have some guitars in Nashville that you, that you just kind of have there that, so you don't have to fly with stuff or. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <clears throat> I do so little work there now. Um, it, all that stuff is over at Rodney's house. <laughs> okay. He's got a gear closet that uh, my guitar coffin, which has, I don't know, eight guitars in it. Um, one of them I miss, uh, Martin uh, 0018 from like 1957 or something like that. Really nice guitars there. Um, my Esquire sometimes is there. Sometimes Rodney's got it out using it. Um, uh, there's a Paul Reed Smith of some kind in there. A couple of cheap Dan Electros. Uh, some other Ernie Ball guitars. Yeah. So those those two strats that you got early on, of course, you were you had uh, the the gentleman uh, was named Mike Dennis. Was that his name? Mike Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis. So he he influenced you into getting to the into the the strats and the the Fender you know Pro Reverb. So what was it about those two strats that uh, made you pick those up and the and the fact that you still have them to this day? So <laughs> I don't know. I. I the, the 66, the 66 Sunburst Strat is the easiest guitar to play of any guitar I've ever played. Much easier than most other Strats. And I have to say that the white Strat included, I find Strats a little difficult to play. They're not all friendly. Um, and the white one not being an exception, um, a little tough, a little spongy feeling to me. The 66 just feels like a solid slab and it's so easy to bend, uh, bend notes on it. This one is pretty, pretty easy. It's better, it's easier than most. I mean, and I grabbed it, it's a, it's a Mexican Strat yeah. um, that I had EMGs, new tuning pegs, wide frets put on it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean that '66 can't be beat. I yeah. mean, it's a great guitar. The white one, like I say, it's it's sort of um, it's it's waiting in the repair shop downstairs, uh, and I haven't used it really in years. Yeah, and do you have all, all your guitars? Has the the '66 has it been refretted also with wider frets? I think every guitar I own's got wide frets on it. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what oh, which frets they are, or are they just I think I, Joe Glazer has done them. I, I think he told me that they were DiMarzio wide ovals. Okay. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fret they used to, uh, yeah, that they started making back in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. And any other modifications that you've done to your Strat besides the frets and the and the EMG pickups? No, although the the '66 used to have the this controlled the tone of the bridge pickup. Right. So you do this Wawa thing, which I don't know if you've ever, if you ever saw the Roseanne Cash, my baby thinks is a train. Yes. Yeah. It's in the Wawa. It's actually the, the tone control. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's wired that way anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that's neat footage uh, you know again that was you know albert lee had played on the uh, the original and then you really you know made it your own with this whole you know kind of train sound at the beginning of it and <laughs> very nice all right guys well, welcome back we uh you know i had to take a nap you know because <laughs> You know, Stuart wore me up. No, not at all. I, uh, we, 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 you know, we did, we did kind of the first part of the interview and then we had a bunch of stuff that we, we left off. So we decided to come back to, uh, to cover some things that we, we missed. So, uh, so th thank you again, Stuart. And, uh, let's, let's talk about New York, uh, you know, because we, we talked a lot about, about Nashville and, and, and coming to here, but you also spent a lot of time in New York and LA. So let's talk about, you know, the New York connection with uh, the things through Rick Chertoff and other stuff that you did there. So, yeah, once again, Rick Chertoff is really key. Uh, I haven't seen him for a long time. I should uh, look him up. But uh, just about the exact same time that he hooked up, hooked me up with Rodney, he was working in, in pre-production for a Willie Nile record for Sony. Um, and a guy named Stuart Lerman was sort of heading that project as producer, engineer, et cetera. Um, T-Bone Wolf was the uh, uh, co-producer on it. Wow. And uh, so Rick introduced me to Stuart and uh, we hit it off immediately. Uh, and next thing I knew I was coming up to do projects, like I say, smaller projects or less, less high profile, but, but really, really good stuff. You know, the Roaches, um, Willie Nile. Yeah. Um, Darden Smith, uh, just, uh, oh, and uh, uh, Dar Williams. And almost everybody we worked with, we did more than one album with. So there were a lot of projects up there in New York. And I would just grab a train from DC, three hours and you're there. Um, and you don't have to mess with the airports or anything. So it was really easy getting in and out of New York. Um, so that really lasted. I mean, uh, up until uh, I, Stuart and I worked together last December and January, for that matter, doing another Dar Williams record. So, yeah, you uh, you've cut a, a, a number of albums with her, and including like appearance, you know, at least one appearance on Austin City Limits. And mm -hmm. uh, did did you actually tour with her, or was that kind yeah, of? Yeah, we did. We, we toured. There's a really hard to find record called uh, uh, Dar Williams Out There Live. Uh, we did. We did a tour in 2000, uh, the fall and early winter of 2000, which was tons of fun. It was a great band. Gail Ann Dorsey, uh, fabulous bassist, yeah. Steve Polly on the drums. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice time. A nice time. You, you mentioned taking the train you know, up, to, uh, up to New York to be involved in these sessions. So 
I guess getting down to a little bit of logistics, are you just carrying a guitar or two with you? Are you, are you, yeah, what are you, what are you taking gear wise? Well, I now have uh, a passel of stuff up there. I've got, I guess, five or six guitars, a couple of amps, or actually just one amp. I've got one of those old Gibson stereo sort of trapezoid shaped deals. Yeah. Um, great, great, quiet uh, or low, low output amp. Um, and between Stuart and me, we would, we've accumulated all kinds of stuff. I got accordions up there and, yeah. uh, you know, any number of things, <laughs> mandolins. So, yeah. That just, that brings that, uh, you, you kind of have this, you, it doesn't seem like you, you like to travel with guitars, which I, I who, who can blame you? So, cause, <laughs> cause it's so problematic, but that's, that's really great that you've been able to kind of have a stash of, of equipment in Nashville and New York and different places so that you can just. Yeah. I mean, I've got a, a bunch of gear at Rodney's house, which used to be at SIR until they stopped doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, stuff there, stuff in, uh, in storage at, at Don Henley's place in Malibu. I'm spread out all over, all over the place. Yeah. So like your, uh, your 66 Strat that you don't have right now. So is, is it out in Malibu or is it out on the, out on the, is it on a truck it's, or it's something? In the, the Eagles, um, uh, warehouse in, in Los Angeles right now. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a, a, a silver Ernie ball access sport that lives in, um, in New York at my buddy Stewart's place um that i don't always see but but I, if if like i've done some touring with with rodney where i've used that guitar I, I use that with with dar um one of my favorite guitars but that lives in new york yeah uh, my little esquire from 1955-56 um that lives at rodney's uh mostly amps out at henley's place from from doing the records out there and and uh like six or seven amps i think yeah Tell us, how did your association with Ernie Ball come about with Music Man? Oh, well, Sterling Ball, who was uh, Ernie's son. Yes. And who took over the business, um, Biff. Yes, <laughs> Biff friend, Ball. Yeah. Um, was coming to gigs uh, when, I when I first started playing with Rodney. And he uh, said, you buy your own strings? And I said, uh, well, yeah, sure. What, what do you use? And, and I actually did use Ernie Balls. I said, I, I, I use your strings. So he... Well, we give you some free strings. And next thing I know, he was bringing guitars down to the shows. And the necks all just feel great to me. There's something about their necks. And I guess they had the large frets built in. Yeah. And frequently a satin finish, which, you know, I usually sort of sand down most of my guitars if they're laminated. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I, their, their stuff feels great to me. The whammy bars are set up the way I like them with the Strat. And uh yeah. And how do you like your whammy bar set up? I'm sorry? And how do you like your whammy bar set up? Oh, just uh, stable enough that it, you know, it, it, it rests flat. The bridge rests flat. You have to, you know, use some muscle to, to, to get it to uh, vibrato. But um, yeah, and, and nothing fancy and no, yeah. no nut locking things or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You, know, you you seem to be able to use the the vibrato a fair amount and not go out of tune. Uh, is there anything special that you do to to keep your guitars in tune? Uh, no, <laughs> not that I'm. 
maybe sometimes, you know, I, I used to put a little graphite in the nut, you know, to make sure yeah. that things would, would not lock when they're returning to their uh, position. You know, it's funny when, when we played in Los Angeles um, with Sean, with the trio, I was using exclusively my 66 Strat for the show at that point. Got a call from Dean Parks, who I guess was friends with Larry. And, and so Larry yeah. had my info. Uh, and he was calling to ask me what I did to stay so in tune. That uh, was an incredibly great compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, because that's the thing about using a, you know, the vibrato bar on a Strat or any, any guitar that doesn't have a, like a locking nut, it's really hard to keep them in tune. And you do a lot of, uh, you know, you, you don't just, you know, hit it lightly at times, at times you'll, you know, do some more aggressive work on it. Oh, and, yeah. it's, and it's just amazing how in tune you are. So <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yes, hopefully. I was at least one night. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for Dean Parks to see you and want to track down your phone number. <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, that, I was so plumped up with pride. That was amazing, but yeah. yeah. Wow. And the, the, the music man guitars, it's it, you know, of course you, you, you mentioned the double neck that of course, and then, and then you've got some other music man guitars that you use for different purposes. It seems like the axis with the, with the, Music Man P90-ish pickups, that seems to be a, a favorite of yours. Yeah, like a Sunburst one right. and the silver one that you mentioned. Sort of a telly, kind of a telly vibe, yeah. really. It's sort of clean country. Most yeah. of like Bernie Ledden's uh, parts and stuff, I would be playing uh, one of the Access, uh, the, the Access Sports. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting watching you play, you know, like Peaceful Easy Feeling where, you know, he used a B-bender and you're just, you know, manually bending it and, you know, bending it right in tune, which is, which is great. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Okay, so let's see. So there's, there, well, what about Jules Shear? Yeah, uh, really great songwriter. Um, I guess his two or two of his most high profile songs were um, All Through the Night that Cindy Lauper had a big hit with. Yeah. And a Bangles song, If She Knew What She Wants. Yeah. Um, and there's at least a, a few more. He, he had a nice little run there um, of a bunch of things. And my, my buddy Stuart Lerman and he were old, old pals in New York and uh, did a couple of projects with him. One of them was called The Great puzzle uh, that was probably the first one we worked on that's a pretty cool record some great stuff on that yeah yeah what's the uh from from recording in nashville new york and la what are what are kind of the differences that you see in the different styles that are, are kind of tendencies toward those recording bases mm. well in nashville it's a little bit like a nine to five or at least it used to be i i you know it's I don't know that they're really doing things the same way these days. I suspect not. But at the time, yeah. um, it was a little like a nine to five job. You did tens, twos, and sixes, which we right. discussed before. Um, and it's relatively low pressure in terms of everybody's kind of on the same page. Everybody gets along. There's not like a lot of nasty competition, or at least there wasn't. Yeah, uh, between players and artists, it was a very, very sort of family, homey kind of a vibe there. Plus, work, you know. Um, New York, it was, you know, you gotta, you're not dragging, you're not bringing a, you know, a boatload of 
amps and effects and all that stuff. Most of the guys in New York kind of throw it on their on their you know their gig bag and and go show up. And most of the studios have in-house gear that you can use. Um, so you can take a, t a cab to your gig, do your thing, and get out of there. Um, in LA, they like to sort of sit around and talk about what you're going to do for about a half a day before you even play a note. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, uh, that, that was definitely when I, the first few times that I worked in, in LA, that was the main thing I noticed was that, you know, first off, show up at noon. No, you know, if you're going to start at noon, you may be starting at two and you're going to have some coffee and a Danish and, you know, talk about last night's base basketball game and, then the, the philosophy of how you want to do your uh, your recording and then maybe push a button, you know, record button at six o'clock. So, yeah, very, very loose and, and, and you know, vibey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you have any preference of the of the three methodologies? Well, in a way, I like the L.A. thing because I like that you're not necessarily sticking with the very first thing that comes up. Um, I don't mind talking about uh, philosophy about how you want to approach a track and um, take your time with overdubs and all that. I, I think the longer you spend in the studio, the better your product usually is. But uh, yeah, I would say I kind of I'm, I'm partial to that. I'm somewhat partial in New York too because that's very much where I always wanted to be, and it's you know the pace is is a little more intense, but it's also you know, as uh, Levon Helm put it, it's an adult portion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, so let's talk about uh, hitting kind of back on the on the Eagles. Uh, one, of course, you you produced their their last album, the Long Road Out of Eden. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how daunting was that? You know, because already you had you had been you know involved with the with the band playing live. And then all of a sudden you get to be involved in their process, which is very uh, intentional, isn't even a, a, a strong enough word to use as far as, you know, all the parts and everything. So tell us about, you know, working on that album and co-producing. Well, um, let's see. We, we came at it from a bunch of different angles. Um, initially, we were supposed to at the end of the first tour, which was summer of 2001. At the end of that summer, we had booked time in September to get together and write. All the members of the band would get together. And um, the date we were supposed to fly was, I can't recall if it was September 10th or September 12th, or it was right in there. And of course, everything right. shut down. They yes. started working, you know, without me. Um, and uh, they wrote a song, Hole in the World, and, and, and did some stuff there. But when, when things loosened up and you could get back on an airplane, um, I would fly out there. And the initial approach was having everybody set up in the studio. Anybody could offer, you know, whatever. Uh, I've got a chord progression or I've got a groove, I got a lick or what have you. And we would do that for a couple of weeks, try things out, um, kind of loose, but it's, you know, with that many people at once, it's difficult to get something, you know, very focused. 
Um, and uh, so we went into the studios for a while and we started off at Glenn's studio in uh, uh, West LA. And we were using his place for pre-production really initially. Uh, we worked in a studio in the Valley that the name of which I cannot recall. And that was where we did uh, uh, one of my songs, one of uh, uh, Center of the Universe. Uh, we, we put that together, but I don't think much else came from those sessions other than demos and stuff, things that wound up being experimental. Uh, we also went to um, what used to be the old A&M studios, um, Henson, I think uh, is maybe what it goes by now. Um, and there we did come up with a bunch of stuff, not final stuff, but um, I remember we worked up Long Road Out of Eden um, there, a, a version of that that was pretty close to what we wound up with finally, just, you know, much more uh, buffed and, and tweaked. Um, but then it really came down to a lot of tracking in small units um, at Don's house and at Glenn's studio. Um, and just a bit of ping-ponging back and forth between the two. You know, most of Don's songs were um, overdubbed too and, and uh, uh, tweaked at his yeah. studios in Malibu. And, and Glenn's stuff was done, of course, at his place in, in LA. Now, would you, would there be a, a, a full-blown like like tracking session? I mean, how, how much was this, you know, kind of overdubbed and stuff? Like what, what would the, the, the tracking session, what would that look like player wise? Well, gee, I, it, it's kind of hard for me to remember precisely how each thing went down. Every song yeah. had its own uh, thing. Sometimes we're tracking with drums, with Scotty on drums. Um, Don mainly would uh, concentrate on on uh, trying to put the song together. It, it, not so much of the drumming. That Scott okay. do a lot of that. Um, uh, yeah, a, a lot of overdubbing. I guess you'd have a demo sort of, and then you'd bit by bit sort of replace the demo stuff with you know final take information. Right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, there, are, there weren't a whole lot of like straight ahead tracking sessions. I don't know, maybe four or five uh, of the songs were Glenn's like that. We definitely had a couple of songs where um, Scott and I uh, would sort of, uh, would set up and, and play a track. Um, uh, Busy Being Fabulous was one and, and Don would kind of guide us from the studio. Um, yeah, that's, it's, that's, it's kind yeah. of all a blur. Yeah. And, <laughs> and there were so many different methods of doing things. Right. Really one thing at all. Um, and you're at a bunch of different studios and yeah. So when, when you're producing, do you tend to play while you're producing or do you tend to, and are you, are you set up in the control room with your guitar and running an amp into another room or how do you normally produce and play? that depends on the situation. Uh, once okay. again, there's almost a, no, no method. It's based on the song and what, what we need. Um, sometimes I'm in the studio uh, playing along as well. Tend not to be. I, I, I tend to either be out there with the band for, for some tracks. Yeah. 
or if I'm overdumbing whatever, doing that in the studio. Um, it's kind of hard to produce while you're playing. I did a, a, another record of cover songs with Sean um, in, in Austin. And I played some of the time, but it just didn't make sense to, 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 uh, to try to really hone in on a part like that. So I, I tended to produce that one from, from the control room. Yeah. And uh, there, you know, on, on Long Road Out of Eden, there was the kind of, uh, th you know, a bit of a, almost kind of a throwback to their older sound with it, like how long with the, uh, you know, where they took actually an old song that they, they used to do. And, uh, and I'm assuming that that was you on the, on the solo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did all the electrics on that. I think, I think Glenn did uh, all the acoustics and yeah. And that was, I think people were assuming that it was an Esquire or a telly or something. And that's actually all the, all the guitars are the same one. I, it's a 335 and I can't recall if it was mine or if it was one of Glenn's beautiful old ones. Wow. That uh, was all 335 stuff. Yeah. On, when on live performances of that, you tend to use a, a, a Gibson special or a junior. Yeah. Uh, yeah jun the junior. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's not nice sounding uh, guitar. That, yeah. That was some of the few other vintage guitars that you take out on the road besides the music man's or those, uh, the, the special and the junior that you play some. Yeah. And there's also the, um, what we have now determined is, was uh, a 1967 Esquire that was a gift to me from Hank DeVito, uh, lovely pedal steel songwriter, yes. Renaissance guy. He was a great photographer. Uh, yes. Bless his heart. I used to, uh, I'd go to go over to his house and that guitar was there and I would always wind up playing it, you know, and one day he said, man, you love that guitar so much. I hardly ever use it. It's yours. Just don't ever give it away. <laughs> so, and, and that was, I think originally it was a 67, that Joe Glazer uh, put together a neck that would have been appropriate for for uh, for that guitar, and uh, that's the one I use for Boys of Summer and stuff. Okay, yeah. wonderful, wonderful guitar. Yeah, I didn't know if that was your old Esquire or no, but that's so that's that's actually a '67 that that he put that Joe put a neck on. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, the, uh, the really old one is over at Rodney's, and and that one lives with the the uh, Eagles and Don. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, you know, one of the, of course, one of the big changes, you know, with uh, Glenn's, you know, passing was, you know, the, you had Deacon come into the band and. Yep. Uh, Who has and, been. Yeah. Definitely has been playing and singing his butt off. He is, uh, he has stepped up <laughs> and, and done it. And he's, he's also a, an honest to God, really good guitar player. I mean, he can nail his dad's parts, but he definitely knows his way around the instrument. And I, I remember hearing stuff that Glenn recorded, just stuff for fun with the family kind of things. And Deacon was playing and already, you know, years ago sounding great. So I, yeah. I, I know he's, he's the real deal. So was he, was he kind of around, you know, you know, would, would he come out on, on tour some with his dad or come out to shows and stuff like oh, that? Yeah, I mean, all, all of Glenn's kids at one time or another, and true of Don as well, um, you know, they, they would come out for maybe a summer uh, leg or whatever. And uh, I think at least two of his kids um, actually held jobs, you know, like we're with the crew or what have you. 
Wow. And uh, you know what could be what could be better? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So with with Deacon out, you know, it's kind of like a sink or swim kind of situation because all of a sudden, you know, because playing at you know stadiums is very different than playing clubs or <laughs> yeah. or, or, or or being a studio guy or whatever that you know he'd done in the past. And so there's kind of a uh, yeah, there's a sink or swim aspect to this and. Uh, yeah, such you know, kudos to him for uh, stepping up to the plate and and uh, and killing it. So yeah, he's been unflappable. I mean, he's 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 so laid back and quiet and just very together <laughs> and and front and center. I mean, he's you know, yeah. he's in his dad's position. Uh, I know. Yeah, he's he's done an amazing job, and he's got his dad's guitars. And you know, we went to work up um, try to love again uh having never done it i mean that was one of the few songs when we started this hotel california tour um and he said you know he wanted to crack at the solo and i just sort of mindlessly assumed that either joe or i would probably play that solo but of course it was his dad once again his dad playing yeah. a great part and he nailed it you know it's just well of course <laughs> fantastic yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's been said, you know, because I think originally when, when people are, you know, heard of, of Deacon and Vince coming in, there was kind of a bit of a, uh, like, huh? But then it was like, once they saw it, everybody got it and, uh, and, and, and loved it. So, yeah, I, I would not have predicted it. I mean, you know, that was Don's call. I think, I think uh, it was a wise one, clearly. Yeah. Okay gear i asked you to you know bring out your old white strat i know you don't you know you don't play it and it's it's uh <laughs> i was so shocked to find that the, the 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 neck pickup is now currently working i don't know why it wasn't but yeah here it is yeah you see this <laughs> wow <laughs> great old great old guitar but as wonderful as it's been, it's kind of a pain. <laughs> why, why is it a pain? It's not the easiest guitar to play. I have to say, I, I was spoiled, spoiled by the 66 that I okay. have, and have had since 1975. Um, that's the easiest guitar to bend strings on. I, and I don't know uh, why that is, in fact, the Fender Custom Shop guys very kindly took my 66 for a couple of weeks and did the thing where they do lasers and all that to measure every bit to make a duplicate guitar. And they made a very nice guitar, but it bears no resemblance whatsoever to uh, the real 66 one. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is, but so I was used to the 66, which is very easy to play, but I was determined to get a vintage instrument and something with some vibe to it. And I eventually came up with this. I bought it from a guy in the DC area, uh, a fellow player. And um, it really took some adjusting. I, I, I had to fight with it because it, it's not as easy to bend the strings. There's a sort of a spongy aspect to the way it feels. It doesn't feel solid. Uh, it sounds really nice, but as I discovered this morning, it um, the output is considerably less 
than the EMGs. Right. Those EMGs, the same ones supposedly that are on my 66 are on my black Mexican Strat here. And the output is substantially greater from, from right. that car. So which, which Strat did you get first? The 60, so you got the 66 first? 66 was the first guitar. I first, the first really good guitar that I owned, I think. Um, right. I got that in 1975 from a guy who bought it in a pawn from a pawn shop in, in Denver, uh, $200. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was my only guitar for a really, really long time. Yeah. Now, again, looking back at old footage of you playing like from the eighties and you, you see a, a fair amount of you playing, of course, the 66, but there's a, there's tons of footage of you playing that, that white strat. And it's just—it's interesting that you're you're saying that the '66 was a better guitar, but there's—I mean—tons of concerts where you're only only playing that that white Strat with Rodney or Roseanne. So I I got used to it. I adjusted to it, and yeah. uh, but it was it was painful. It was almost like <laughs> physical therapy. It was not an easy shift. I remember the first show we did when I actually took it out. We were opening for Waylon Jennings in some kind of theater of the round theater in the round and uh i thought oh my god what have i done because <laughs> yeah. i didn't have my 66 with me i just took that guitar and assumed that was going to work out fine and i realized that in in the muscular uh moment of playing live in front of people that it was not as responsive as at least not in the same ways that the 66 was yeah. it, it was it was uh it was some work but it sounds like part of the reason you got it was you wanted a, a, an older Strat. Was there just, you know, just because of the, the, the lore and the lure of it, you, you wanted an older one or was that it? Or yeah, what? and I think most of my guitar playing friends were all of the opinion that, you know, Stuart, you got to get yourself a proper old guitar. You know, these things, these new things. Yeah. So yes. I, I, there's some wisdom in that. I, I, I think, I think the older a guitar is, or the more it's been played probably um, there's, there's something, uh, to be said for for that, um, the age shows, I, and I'm you know, I'm happy with what it ended up doing, but it was just a lot more work than than I I thought it might have been. Yeah, so the the '66 kind of took took over as your as your main guitar, and that that seemed to be what you were seen with. And except for I guess with with Colvin, you would have that guitar tuned down, or, or, or you know, with that with that low C tuning, or oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah, I use that for the G over C, however you want to refer to it. Yeah, use that for that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and kind of hitting back on what you said before, would you tour with one guitar when when you were touring with Rodney? You said you just had that '50s. You know, you didn't I, have the other guitar. I think, I think I think initially I probably did. I I might have I might have actually had that white Strat, but but I don't recall precisely. Yeah. But I, I think it was it, certainly the uh, the '66 was all I played from. 1975 till 1985. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, then the white one took over and was the only, I mean, I, I would take both of them out, but the white one was the main one. I think I didn't realize that I could set the 66 up with the whammy bar the way that the white one had been. And once I got the 66 to, to uh, happily, you know, situated with the whammy bar, then that went back to being the main guitar. Yeah. 
How much of your playing is informed from 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 piano? You know, I think actually a, a fair amount. That's an interesting question. Uh, I think I'm often asking the guitar to do things that pianos and uh, mandolins and twelve strings and uh, you know trying trying to get other things out of that instrument other than what it was made for, perhaps. But you know, having been uh, a recovering piano player, yeah, um, some of the chordal stuff I think I do is probably influenced uh, by by keys. Yeah. And from some of the playing that you did earlier, you know, watching your hand up close, it looks like you have a fairly light touch. Is that, is that correct? I think that's true. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to gauge because you don't know what, I don't know what anybody else considers a light or a heavy touch. Right. I, I do know that I, uh, yeah, the lighter the touch for me, the more accurate it's going to be. But sometimes you have to have muscle. Yeah. Sometimes you have to dig in. So right. it's not, you know, all the time. But I, I realized when I was playing with the Eagles, the first couple of years, I was using it, which I do anyway, but like a flat pick more, doing more from here than, than involving the fingers. But as I relaxed and got into the gig, the fingers started coming into play and, and now I'm back to, I think a lighter touch, but it was a heavier touch at first because of probably nerves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the intensity of those live performances. Was it also, uh, I mean, you know, of course you had played some big shows before, but uh, you know, those are some, probably some of the biggest shows you'd ever played before in your life, probably playing with the Eagles and for oh, the most absolutely. people. Yeah. yeah. I think the biggest, crowd that we'd ever played for or that I the trio at the Lilith Fair um, right. was I think you know an average of probably like 25,000 people at a, at a show um, which is pretty I mean that's the size of an Eagles crowd for sure yeah stage volume uh, with the with the Eagles and with the harmonies and such I would assume that it's low but what is the stage volume like for y'all uh I don't know it's 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 not it's not particularly low. It's not. I don't play really loud. Okay. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty muscular. Pretty 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 loud up there. Yeah. Can get you know, and every now and then you know we'll have to sort of, you know, Donald or somebody will will say, wait a minute, you know, let's let's pull this thing back in a little bit. You know, it doesn't have to be incredibly loud these days. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and I've got one ear with uh. uh for monitor and then the other ears open. And so I'm hearing my amps from over there. Uh, yeah. So are there wedges also, or are you only? Yes. Okay. okay, so you've got an, an in-ear and you've got a wedge and you've got your amp going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then do you have certain things only going into one? Or Yeah, I keep the drums and bass and my vocal in this ear and that's it and then everything else comes from the wedges and and of course my amp wow <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> yeah it's 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 a little strange that took getting used to that definitely yeah. took getting used to now is that something that the other guys are doing also or, or... Mm -hmm. okay oh so, yeah i i'm not sure what everybody has in their separate units but almost everybody's got one ear 
uh, you know, wired in, and then yeah. the other one free. So and hence the use of the you know so the in ear and the wedge. Everyone's doing that kind of system. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's very interesting because most are, <laughs> are one or the other. You know. <laughs> no. I think the keyboard players uh, have stereo mix, you know, and they're and they're they're stationary, and that information is not coming out of amps. So, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about oh, in in recording? Uh, do you tend to have your amps up up pretty loud or or down? You know how how you know like your amps? Where would you set them at volume wise? Like you would doing a show or down lower when you're recording? Well, I mean, once again, it's it depends upon the song, the amp, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. In in New York, I've got um, my buddy Stuart has a Silverface Vibrolux, and it is great for so many things. There's almost nothing it can't do, uh, and I, I don't know that I've ever run across an amp like that. Um, usually, at around two, the volume at around two, bass and treble around six. Um, and that's just a good basic sound, basic, relatively clean sound. And as you come up in level, you know, you go towards three and four, you're starting to get a pretty good amount of, of punch. Yeah. Um, and like I say, also, I have the, the, the Gibson stereo amp there as well, which you can just turn everything up all the way on that. And, you know, it sounds great. And that's, of course, more distorted. Yeah. Um, in Nashville, I used to use clean stuff, basically a clean initial track um, with uh, 63 uh, Fender Super and um, and that twin that I told you about. Yeah. Uh, silver face, remarkably good sounding twin. I and mean, that was like about volume level about two would be really nice on that. Okay. So, yeah. so the, the Super and the twin was kind of the, your combination for playing the Nashville stuff. And then you had the vibe yeah. yeah. and the, the Gibson amp. Yeah, and of all, there's a ton of amps that I've got out at Don's. I've got an AC30, a uh, 65 amps uh, London combo amp, which is really nice. Um, for the distorted stuff, a, a lot of the, the rocking stuff on um, on Long Road, uh, we had a couple of Gibson Falcons. Yeah. Uh, one of them was great. One of them was pretty good. And actually, we had a third that was kind of worthless. But um, and that was for like distorted, you know, for rock and roll stuff. Yeah. How did you end up on the, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, look, looking at, you know, footage through the through the years, you kind of used, uh, you know, Fender Twins a lot early on with Rodney and Roseanne, it looked like, or, mm -hmm. you know, I guess could have been a pro or something like that. And then, uh, but with the Eagles, you've used, uh, looks like PV Classic 50s, like the 410. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I wanted something that would be louder than, you know, louder than a, a, a pro, but, you know, not as powerful as a twin, you know, which is just too much clean yeah. sound. Uh, and someone had told me about the, the, uh, the Classic 50s. And I tried one out. Oh, you know what? I think it might have been Brent Mason. I think Brent Mason on a session had two classic 50s running in stereo. And it was great sound. And from the, I think that's why I went and tried those. And they, you know, I got one for the Eagles and was like, okay, great. So I've got a bunch of those. I now have 
a little Walter. Yeah, Phil Bradbury. Phil, nice guy. Yeah. Sweetheart. Um, he built me one, said, if you like it, great. If you don't, no problem. You know, I'll take it back. But he built basically his version of a super, uh, of a basement. Yeah. Uh, and uh, with four tens and, and all of that. And to my ear, it sounds fabulous. And all the crew seem to think so too. So those classic 50s are now going to be gone and in place of them, there'll be a, the, the little Walter version of that. I can't, I don't know what he calls it. I can't recall, but. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, a 410, you know, basement type amp. 410, yeah. was that 60 watts or something like that? Yeah, about around 50, 60, somewhere on there. Yeah. 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 And yeah. do you use two or one? Uh, I've got two on, on stage, but only uh, because it, in the event that one goes down and I've okay. got shipped over. It's a backup yeah. if I need it. Yeah. And do you prefer tens? Do I prefer tens? Yeah, 10 inch speakers. Uh, Just uh, depends on the amp. They, they, they seem to have, what's in an AC30? Two tens? Two twelves. Two twelves. Yeah. Think, you know, yeah. I, it's I, just I, whatever I, works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What if we not hit upon? I feel, uh... well, one thing I, I would like to say, you know, you, you had asked before about how was the transition when Glenn passed away? Okay. As far, you know, the rehearsing and, and seeing as how Glenn used to run the rehearsals and all of that, you had asked about how, how that went. And I, one of the things that I think that I neglected to mention is it sure does not hurt <laughs> That um, that Will Hollis, Michael Thompson, and Scott Crago, and myself have been playing this material for twenty years. Yeah. Um, such that when, in the absence of you know Glenn's running the show, everybody pretty much knew what their role was, what it had to be, and I think that you know that that really helped the transition a lot the fact that they were really there's a core of players it's basically don's band without a bass player and without a second guitar player um that have been backing up don and backing up the eagles for two decades and in scott's case he goes back to the drummer goes back to uh, uh hell freezing over wow so but aside from him you know uh will hollis and mike thompson and, and, and myself and scott We've been there for a long time, and I, I think that that probably was a huge, a huge help in in the transition. Yeah, the the veterans, yeah, yeah. the guys yeah. That, that that you know that have been in the trenches for for twenty years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Not that not that Don and, and and Joe and Timothy are you know don't have to uh, you know sometimes crack the whip or do whatever, but you know it it, it was it was not the um, chaos that it could have been. Yeah. What kind of adjustment was there, you know, again, because like you also had been kind of the sole guitarist in a lot of a lot of the bands that you worked with, the sole electric guitarist. Right. Uh, and and then all of a sudden, did you have to hone in your sound at all when all of a sudden working in a bigger band with more other things going on? Did you have to think about things EQ wise or or is that being done at the board and such or? No, not really. I, I, I pretty much play the way I've always played. Uh, of course, a lot more um, pedals. I mean, not that many more, but uh, having a second echo and things like that were different. 
Um, and of course, the, the the red snapper was a great discovery for me as yeah. far as uh, distorted stuff. Um, I, I didn't really, uh, maybe, I mean, I had to adapt a little bit, but it also depends upon the song. I mean, going from the really clean, fat, jazzy sound of I Can't Tell You Why to, you know, uh, what have you, uh, Take It Easy, any of the other songs. Um, there's That's a pretty broad spectrum, but I don't know, I've just managed to somehow tweak it out. All right. So we got we got Stuart to uh, to to get his guitar out, and he's gonna uh, I think he's gonna start off by showing us some uh, some fake pedal steel stuff that 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 he's of course we all want to know, and he's gotten questions about. So so thank you, Stuart. Yeah. Um, so this first thing is I guess it's like the third or fourth verse of the last resort. Uh, there's a little pedal steel part that comes in there, so. Wow, that, that's uh, so you you know you, you've got the you've got the vibrato bar that you're using. You've got the uh, volume pedal that you're bringing in for, to to swell things, and and really getting a, a very nice faux pedal steel you know type <laughs> part on there. That's very nice. Uh, let me let me let me show you another one. This is a, a, a solo that I sort of put together for a song that Emmy and Rod uh, Emmy Lou and and Rodney did on their second uh, duets record. Uh, Try not to mess it up. It's from a song called Just Pleasing You. There's that. <laughs> wow, very, very convincing. Wow. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> and, and did Hank DeVito contact you saying that he uh, he, he wants his guitar back? That he, <laughs> <laughs> and he, I was supposed to play on that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, it's funny too, because on the session for that song, uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a, a, uh, a C6 player, you know, a, a, whose uh, ancestry goes back to the uh, uh, Bob Wills and all that, uh, you know, oh, the non-pedal, non pedal steel stuff. Right. And uh, he, he, he and I were playing on that song together. It was so strange for me to be taking the solo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they wanted more of that sound, you know, I guess they, they wanted more of the pedal steel E9, you know, sound, which that's right. Right. You know, what, yeah. what you were right. doing. Uh, let me see if I can work out this wang bar thing that I've got. Uh, uh, it's a solo that uh, I put together for a friend of mine. Uh, and basically the changes 
are, it was in the key of A, and it was basically going from the five chord to the four chord three times, and then... Uh, mind-bending stuff the way the way you uh, you know kind of will use slurs where you're kind of sliding up to things in the and the vibrato bar all at the same time i mean that's yeah you know, like uh like your solo on uh i don't want to spoil the party you know with roseanne there were some oh, of those right, kind yeah. of things also you know yeah those those are really great techniques and it, it seems like you're, you're doing these chordal shapes that are kind of uh, in the uh, in the middle of the neck and uh, well what I mean by that is like the, you know, B, G and D strings, you're doing a lot of things, you know, based on those and, uh, and, and sixth chords and things that are, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then D, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. I, you know, fun, funnily enough, um, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, is the uh, son-in-law of Winona Judd, and he also and he also plays with her at times, and he also tours with the Dixie Chicks, and he, uh, his name is Justin Weaver, and uh, and so he he was mentioning how much he learned from having to uh, learn your parts on you know to touring with Winona and just how educational it was. Oh and, wow. Uh, and uh, and how, how much you appreciated it and he was he was geeking out and and uh and he was when i told him i was going to interview you he was saying you know he was he was he fed me some of the questions that uh, that i got <laughs> just because he had such an appreciation because he had to learn all your all your parts on the uh wow. you know on on all those songs so wow. yeah nice nice thanks for sharing that <laughs> absolutely mm -hmm. 